CC Growth Journeys from Emerging Ecosystems to Global Markets. When I compare our fund to a fund in Silicon Valley, we underwrite a different risk profile in the founders. We underwrite lower technical risk and a higher market risk, particularly in enterprise software. So the lower technical risk means if there is an ambitious product roadmap ahead of me, I am pretty confident a Central European team is going to be able to scale its engineering talent to a point where they'll be able to crack the solution. The higher market risk, though, means that your biggest customers are half the world away from you, and you don't really know if you are solving a particular pain point for them or not. Credo Ventures is bullish on the Central European talent and helps its entrepreneurs thrive in the U.S. market. This is Enes. Today we have Andre, the general partner of Credo with us. Credo Ventures is most known for investing in Central European entrepreneurs who have aspirations to become successful in the US. In this episode, we'll talk about the advantages of starting in Central Europe, Andre's experience with companies like AVG Avast, UiPath and Product Board, and how they work together with the founders to overcome the founder market fit problem. Let's begin. Hey, Andre, how are you? Hi, Anis. All good on my end. How are you? Great, thanks. Where are you right now? Are you in the US or in Czech Republic? Czech Republic, small village outside of Prague. What is it called and how outside? How much outside? So it's called Trnova. It's about 30 minutes by car from Prague. We have been here for about two months since it's a place where it's much easier to manage our kids than it was in Prague in a big town. Yeah, nice family time. I myself came to southern Turkey to our summer town and I've been stuck here for a month now. But it's way calmer here. I mean, you don't feel the panic and the chaos when you're in like a distant place, like a village. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's that and waking up to the smell of horses and sounds of chickens has some romantic aspect for at least some time being as well. So for us, it was actually nice to bond as a family, uh, spend more time together and be sort of in a setting where we otherwise would not have been. Cool. I mean, the Czech Republic has been managing the crisis pretty well, so... I guess you'll be back to Prague by the time we even uh, publish this podcast. Yeah, yeah. It seems like it should happen uh, in about two weeks uh, from today. And so we are shooting this first week of May. Nice. Good luck. Good luck. So in this podcast, we're going to discuss a bit about your background, but then talk uh, more deeper into your investment strategy, how you guys uh, founded Credo in the first place, and what would be your strategy moving forward, hopefully as a fund for the next decade or more to come. Let's start with uh, talking about yourself. Can you please give us a bit about your background? What were you doing before you became a venture capitalist? Sure. I actually never had a different job than being on the buy side. So I uh, went to school in the University of Virginia, uh, where I studied finance and management, and then moved to Prague, where I was uh, starting with this growth fund uh, that was investing sort of their own money along with third party, investing in Eastern European way, which was buy majority stakes in companies and then sort of tell the founders what to do. But one of the portfolio companies they did invest in was AVG. They actually ended up owning mm-hmm. almost 100% of AVG technology which is the software security company, uh, back when it had $3 million in revenue. And uh, by the time it IPO'd on the New York Stock Exchange in 2012, it had about $330 million in revenue. And I was thinking, wow, well, if this one software company uh, out of Czech Republic can do it, why don't we just start a fund 
that would focus exclusively on software-enabled companies out of Central Europe with some sort of global ambitions and potential. And around that time, two partners of what was to be Credo Ventures actually knocked on our door and were fundraising with us. And I said, well, this is exactly what I was talking about. I think we should invest. And so we did. So this group put some money together. We invested into Credo's first fund. And I joined the team in uh, mid-2011. We raised our first fund of 18 million euros. And that was the inception of uh, Credo Ventures. Interesting. So writing huge checks from a growth fund um, to an IPO with AVG, to a fund that's much smaller potentially, an 18 million euro fund. And now you guys are writing checks that range between 50k to 10 million how do you separate that i mean what's your core stage focus um and do you have different partners looking at different levels because you're writing checks that are as small as 50k and then as large as potentially 10 million you know the common denominator in the investment strategy is we want to find the best teams out of central europe that have some sort of global ambitions and potential We want to become their first institutional investor, partnering as early as we can. Typically, about 80% of that portfolio is on the enterprise software side. Mm -hmm. And uh, the biggest market for enterprise software, in our opinion, is the U.S. So a lot of our mission uh, from the earliest day is asking, does this team have what it takes to be successful in the U.S.? And how can we, as a fund, make their success in the U.S. more likely. Uh, so in terms of why is there such a widespread between 50K and 10 million is, you know, we can invest as early as no deck, which we have done in the past, <laughs> particularly to founders we know well. We want to reserve that opportunity. Uh, but there are companies where we were more hesitant in the first pre-seed or seed round, and we still want to have an option to be able to invest as late as a Series A is our first check uh, into founders that uh, are a little bit further down the journey, have proven themselves, and we made the mistake of not backing them earlier. Makes sense. I mean, for, for on the enterprise side, I mean, that really resonates with me because looking into our own portfolio at 500 Istanbul, um, around 75% of our Fund 1 companies are actually enterprise SaaS. And within that, a majority are more mid-enterprise. So companies that sell their products for say, a 1,000 to 10,000 euros per month. We don't have that much um, companies that do much larger tickets, and we don't have that much companies that do lower-end SME SaaS, which is funny. You said U.S., and you've established yourself as a fund, um, as VC fund who basically takes companies, takes entrepreneurs from Central Europe to U.S., and you are the bridge, basically, from that region. What are some of the things that you've done to establish yourself like that? Um, what was your playbook? Yeah, so I have heard multiple funds sort of pitching the bridge concept. Mm-hmm. And I think the reason why it worked for us was twofold. One is we decided to have a U.S. office. So I actually moved to Menlo Park to start our quote, quote, office, which was my bedroom in our house in Menlo Park. And the goal of that office was to accelerate fundraising and hiring of those teams that are in the process of transitioning the business leadership to the U.S. And the second part, which is a big part of our investment thesis, is we got lucky. We always say that it's better to be lucky than smart. And we definitely had our share of luck. Uh, in investing. And so around the time when I was moving to the U.S., 
Uh, we had our breakout companies such as UiPath and Product Board raising their Series A's and B's. And basically, my first six to nine months, I was just, uh, I would say, door-to-door salesman on Sandy Hill Road, where I would go from fund to fund and say, hey, I'm Andre from this place called Prague in the Czech Republic, and here are a few companies from our portfolio I think you should look at. And... You know, if we did not have UiPath and Product Board, they would say, all right, well, thanks, but we don't see much interesting here. But we were lucky in that they said, wow, well, these companies are actually pretty interesting. Why don't we take a closer look? And that led to formation of many strong relationships uh, we were able to build in the Valley since I moved there. And uh, today when we send a new business plan to, I don't know, and Andreessen or a Sequoia are taking a serious look at it. And our door, their doors are always open to us in their hope that we are bringing the next UiPath or product board to them again. Yeah, I mean, looking at your portfolio, companies like UiPath, product board, PriceFX, APA, Consignia, I'm sure you guys have a lot of pattern matching. So since you've given an example on fundraising, I want to go deeper into that. Um, the way I see it, um, in VCs in general want to invest into their 40-mile radius. So if you go with a company that's on at the seed level or Series A level where the founder has just relocated to the Bay Area, it's really tough to fundraise. But if you're raising your Series B or Series C, even if your team is back in Prague or Istanbul, doesn't matter. You've established yourself as a company. You have solid revenue. The numbers speak for itself, and it's much easier. So my question is, what were some of the struggles that these great companies from Central Europe faced as they were pitching to US VC funds? I have to say that we have actually seen this change significantly this decade. So it used to be that Eastern Europe was perceived as this whole, like the post-Soviet Union whole, uh, which Americans know nothing about uh, and are not interested in learning about it. Fortunately, you know, thanks to companies like AVG, Avast, uh, ESAID, UiPath, and so on and so forth, we have seen that disadvantage actually turn into a major advantage. So if you look at companies like HackerRank, which publish um, this annual ranking of quality of developers by nations, actually Eastern Europe is always on the top. So you have places like Poland, Czech Republic, and Slovakia constantly delivering the best engineers. And ironically, this is actually the heritage of Soviet Union, which focused its education on STEM programs. So we have this high quality engineering talent, which increasingly in a place like Bay Area is highly sought after luxury good, because today all of the engineering talent in the Bay is picked apart by large companies with large budgets, such as the Googles and the Facebooks of the world. And it's actually very hard to start an enterprise software company with a deeper technology team from the scratch because it's so expensive. And that's where these Eastern European engineering teams are actually delivering on a substantial competitive advantage. So today, if I walk into uh, Sequoia or Andreessen, unlike seven years ago, when they would say, oh, your whole team is not based here, then we are not going to invest. Today, they say, oh, you already have five to 10 engineers in the Czech Republic and can scale it up to 30 to 40 in a year. That's amazing. Let's double down on that. And we have also the same effect on the acquisition side. So, you know, cognitive security was bought by Cisco. API was bought by Oracle. And both Cisco and Oracle actually viewed the Czech office 
as a big asset, which they wanted to double down on. And, you know, in terms of, for example, cognitive security, I think they doubled or tripled the headcount uh, since they bought cognitive security because they just saw so much engineering talent coming out of there. So I think the tide is actually shifting significantly. Uh, and what we view is that today, even at seed stage, if a startup can show that they can scale an engineering team from Eastern Europe, it is actually considered an advantage. Well, that's great to hear. Um, like In our experience, what um, our founders struggled with in the US was we put a small ticket, let's say a 500K round, and then they go to the US to raise a couple mil round. And it's tough, but if they can bridge that couple million and they go to raise five to 10 million, then it becomes much easier. So for our second fund um, that we're doing, hopefully we're going to become that bridge. Uh, we're going to have these 1.5 to 2 million euro checks to bridge that gap so that they can go and raise five to 10 million from the US and they'll have a much more established team. But how do you Americanize a company? I'm sure you also give a lot of advices uh, to entrepreneurs to Americanize their company, both from a team perspective, from a product, from language, and from cultural perspectives. What are some of the tips that you provide them? What we always say from the beginning and, and the way we look at our investment activity is when I compare our fund to a fund in Silicon Valley, we underwrite a different risk profile in the founders. We underwrite lower technical risk and a higher market risk, particularly in enterprise software. So mm -hmm. the lower technical risk means if there is an ambitious product roadmap ahead of me, I am pretty confident a Central European team is going to be able to scale its engineering talent to a point where they'll be able to crack the solution. The higher market risk, though, means that your biggest customers are half the world away from you, and you don't really know if you are solving mm -hmm. a particular pain point for them or not. A lot of your theory around product building is either theoretical or validated by local customers from Central Europe, but my risk with local validation is that just because local bank or local factory bought your solution has no implication on whether an American bank or an American factory would buy your solution because the set of competitors and suppliers to those banks and factories will be totally different. Therefore, our number one advice to any founder that we are planning to back is move as close to your key customers as early as possible in the company life cycle. That's why a lot of our work from the earliest days is from team evaluation perspective is looking at the CEO and asking, okay, is this person someone who can become the first salesperson of the company in the Anglo-Saxon world? And for Eastern Europeans, this is actually a difficult question to answer because A, you are not a native speaker, and B, particularly if you are an engineering CEO, you are not used to selling, let alone selling to enterprises in the US. So that challenge ahead of you is very daunting. And unless that CEO has the necessary quality, language skills, uh, personality traits to succeed as a salesperson in the US, we think the odds of that company becoming successful is very low because the goal of that CEO for the next 12 to 18 months after he makes that relocation is to A, get customer validation for the product and B, scale the local team. And if you cannot sell it to customers, the odds are you cannot sell the vision of your company to your employees and you are going to struggle on both fronts. I mean, definitely, definitely. I agree 100%. 
Has there been any examples where the founder didn't relocate um, to, say, Silicon Valley and they were still based in Czech Republic or Romania, yet they were successful in the U.S. markets? I mean, have you seen any examples like that? So when you look at UiPath, very early on, they had primarily an indirect uh, sales channel, meaning they went to Deloitte and KPMGs of the world and said, look, do you want to optimize the client's operating costs by cutting, say, 1% from the OPEX? Here, take RPA. All you have to do is install those robots, which are going to automate part of company workflow, and voila, magically, you are going to save a lot of money on the bottom line for those clients. And in case of UiPath, it actually worked. We don't see it working too often because for someone like Deloitte, you have to be, you know, (laughs) Um, number one or two on the priority list to really be pushed by the consultants, but sometimes it does happen. And so what happened with UiPath growth trajectory is that they actually started growing in the US, in Europe, and in Asia simultaneously. And by Series A, actually the revenue was fairly neatly broken up between one-third in Asia, one-third in Europe, and one-third in the US, primarily thanks to the indirect sales channel which they were using. Now, once they started building their own direct Salesforce capabilities, the CEO ended up relocating to New York anyways. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it was, say, a year or two later. Um, so we do see examples where it happens and it can scale. Uh, but I would say they are more of an exception to the rule. What we see more often are founders such as the CEO of Product Board, which was head of product at Good Data already in Silicon Valley. Uh, Then he went to get his MBA at University of California in Berkeley. Uh, And then he started Product Board with his co-founder who was based in Prague. And he himself as the CEO was based in San Francisco. And sort of a new thing which we observe in our portfolio as part of the third fund is that I would say roughly 50% maybe 40% of our founders now from Central Europe are actually already based somewhere in the U.S. when they are starting their company. Mm -hmm. And I think this speaks to the maturity of our ecosystem. So if you're just starting out building your first company, you relocate to the U.S. or you relocate as one of the employees of those companies. But once you sell that company or once you leave the company as an employee and start your own, you already are in the U.S., And therefore, I think what's going to happen over the next decade is that actually the best Central and Eastern European talent will not be starting their companies from Central and Eastern Europe and shifting to U.S. as part of our investment, but they will already be in the U.S. and they will only have engineering and some other offices in Central Europe, but the business team will already be in the U.S. And a lot of our efforts at Credo over the next five years will be investing into our own infrastructure and resources in a way where we can capture a lot of those founders and be able to invest into a lot of those founders that are already based in the Valley, but are from Central and Eastern Europe. Yeah, definitely. Like if you look into our portfolio, a portion of the founders um, started in Turkey and now we push them to the US. But another portion, um, as you've correctly said, already start in the Valley and have their technology office back in Turkey. So they are utilizing the talent arbitrage themselves. So we put money into them as well. Of course, the terms are different. The risk profile is different. But what I see is these entrepreneurs who start in the Valley, these Central European entrepreneurs who start in the Valley um, can much easily have A plus teams. So the problem is not to grow the 
team as a, from a quality perspective, but to grow the company. Whereas the entrepreneurs that start in Turkey are less seasoned. They don't have as much experience either as an entrepreneur or working at a high growth profile startup. So they have to educate themselves and improve themselves further as they grow the company. Him or her as the CEO must grow herself um, as well. Do you see that happen to entrepreneurs from Central Europe too? Uh, yeah, 100%. And I also want to comment on sort of what you said about valuations, right? Like for VCs in Central Europe, sort of investing both in the US and locally, like the question becomes, okay, well, how do you justify the different valuations? Yeah. And as you said, like, I think the higher built-in valuation is also the diminished risk profile of the company because they already are in the States, already have hopefully proven some ability to validate their product with customers in the States and have already hired some people in the States versus a lot of the people who are just getting to the relocation, all of this remains unproven. Um, so I think it's actually you know, very normal or appropriate to pay a premium for a Central European team that is already raising from the U.S. And ironically, what we also see is the teams might be raising in the U.S., but for the very first round of financing might be more attractive to investors back in Central Europe than for those who are in the U.S. Because in the U.S., they are still sort of newbies who don't know many people. But in Central Europe, back at home, they are already considered stars because they already live, say, in the Valley or somewhere in the U.S. and are speaking to the U.S. investors. Yeah, I mean, um, I have those in our portfolio as well. So these companies were the founder relocated a year ago or two years ago. The company is doing well, but they're not in the circle. They're still outsiders to the Valley. So they try to raise from back at home or uh, from our region. You've said that U.S. VCs are investing more and more overseas, uh, which is a trend that we're seeing. And another trend is these Western European VCs. I'm coming east to Central Europe or Eastern Europe too to invest into the companies and opportunities that are here in our region because the talent is here. Um, do you think that's a threat for Credo or does it make life even better for Credo? So we try to position ourselves as a deal sourcer to some of the bigger funds. So our strategy consciously is to co-invest with the larger funds as early as possible. So one of the big lessons which we learned early in our lifetime was don't be greedy on equity. If the company is going to be successful, you can return your smaller fund on less equity and it might be more beneficial to reserve some of that equity for another fund that might have a complementary network or might have a complementary skill set to yours and can help the company scale as opposed to try to take that entire round for yourself but have a company that has a diminished capability to grow. So we work very intensively with Western funds And on the question of Western Europe versus U.S., for our particular model where we are trying to make our company successful in the U.S., a big part of our play is trying to connect them to investors directly in the U.S. Uh, so unless those funds who are in Europe also have offices in the U.S., they are not as desirable to us as co-investors or for loan investors as those funds that already have an office in the U.S. and can help the company scale further. Uh, so, you know, if you have a fund out of London and we have an enterprise software company uh, trying to scale to the U.S., the question is, why would you want a fund from London to invest in your company? 
London is not a place where you are going to do significant amount of business. London, if you invest there, they're going to force you to travel there and you have to spend some time there, yet you have no business there. So it's just a middle step. So if we can position ourselves in taking one extra step and skipping London or skipping Germany from investment ecosystem point of view, we are very happy to do so because we are fast forwarding the lifetime of the company. That definitely makes a lot of sense. But we've spoken about US and US on and on. So do you not have companies that pursue a more of a regional pay, become pan-European, for example? No, we actually try to steer away from it. So I think we have some exceptional cases where we have done so in the past. Mm -hmm. But I would say that out of the portfolio of 50 companies, there might be two to five. We have done that historically because we were driven by some outstanding team and they wanted to be successful, mm -hmm. for example, in the UK. But for example, in our third fund, I don't think there is a company out of those 15 investments we have made that doesn't have the ambition to be successful in the US and doesn't consider US to be its main long-term customer market. We think that the exit potential for those companies, the fundraising ability for those companies is just significantly larger if you focus on the U.S. market than it would be if you focus on a German, French, U.K. or Polish market, uh, so to speak, to use a local example. Wow, that's really interesting. So then my question becomes for what, I mean, it's obvious that for companies who are going for new technologies, who need high enterprise budgets, who need early adapters, so these companies um, have to go to the U.S., but... Which companies do you think shouldn't go to the U.S. and um, rather pursue a regional play or go to a different geography like, I don't know, Southeast Asia, Middle East? So what different verticals or technology maturity levels um, would better suit those companies? So, you know, there are two answers to this question. One is if you have a product that's appealing locally and you sort of have a more local ambition, then it's perfectly fine to do, you know, an e-commerce company in the Czech Republic. And there have been plenty of funds, particularly in the Czech Republic, who have been very, very successful with investing into companies that are successful in the Czech Republic, maybe grow to Poland. But it's a totally different investing and operating experience, which we at Credo at least don't have. And we don't think we could be equally good and helpful if we pursued both the investment strategy of investing into local champions and pursuing uh, the global leaders. That's why we are exclusively focused on the global leaders. And there are amazing funds all across Central Europe who are very good at helping regional champions uh, scale in their particular industries. Now, to answer the second part of the question, which is, is U.S. always the biggest market if you want to build a global leader? Or are there other markets which might be even bigger in size? The answer increasingly is that yes, we do see more opportunity in China uh, and Asia in general. So we have, for example, an industrial automation company called Photomio, uh, which has a 3D camera focused on bin picking. And the biggest bin picking orders and biggest industry automation projects are actually in China. And there is a very good reason for that. China is the manufacturing capital of the world, particularly around the Shenzhen area. Uh, and therefore, the hunger for innovation and the scale of the customers is just significantly higher than it would be in Europe or in uh, the US. 
And we see companies like Photonio now having most of their revenue come from Asia and specifically China. And we see them increasingly building out their sales teams in Asia as well. So yes, it is a new trend we are seeing as well in some verticals such as industrial automation. Interesting. But I love the fact that you stick with your principles and um, invest into companies who only pursue the U.S. market. The basic advantage um, of companies coming out of Central Europe or the companies that have their technology shops uh, back in Central Europe is, of course, talent. And then that comes in two ways. A, scaling talent and B, being able to retain talent at a cost-effective way. So that's the main advantage. What do you think are the main disadvantages um, for entrepreneurs who are starting off in Central Europe with hopes of going to the U.S.? One is that information vacuum in that, A, you don't know your customers' problems as intimately as you would if you were sitting next to them in San Jose. And B, you don't know who is working on what in every other garage or apartment from San Francisco to San Jose, which might be competitive or complementary to your solution. So from this perspective, you are in a large disadvantage from market intelligence perspective. Another disadvantage, of course, is funding, right? So to use yesterday's example and build it back on Photonio, Photonio has 150 people, unique product, patented product, great growth, and yet was able to raise 15 million euros in its five-year history. Just yesterday, there was a startup funded by Index for $40 million with one-tenth of the revenue and one-third of the team. But just because they have access to those big funds, have built prior relationships, are in a better fundraising position and have better access to capital than an Eastern European founder would. Now, we are trying to work hard on closing that gap, but that gap nonetheless still exists. That's a tough gap to close. And as a board member in a lot of these companies who are trying to go to the US, were you part of any drastic measures against the founder so that the company can be successful in the US? I mean, did you have to take some drastic measures uh, such as either firing the founder or putting a professional CEO because you saw that the culture wasn't a good fit and you need someone with a better cultural fit to be able to take the company to the next level? Uh, which the current CEO and the founder can't. Yeah, so we have definitely seen many times the transition not working out, not working out for a host of reasons. It might be that you relocate and it turns out there are a bunch of competitors for your idea, or it turns out that there is no customer demand for your idea in the US, or it turns out you are just not the right person to sell it. I think sort of the drastic measures you speak of, so changes to the CEO positions, in our opinion, are... Changes of last resorts, they only work if the CEO wants it to work. Meaning, if the CEO comes to me and says, Andre, I have spent here a year and I have realized I might not be the best suited to either sell my solution, hire the team, or just continue as the CEO, then this is a topic I would be very happy to discuss. But in my 10-year career as a VC uh, with 50 portfolio companies, I actually cannot recollect a single time there was a CEO transition. I definitely never fired a CEO. There was never a board decision to remove a CEO against his will. 
And I cannot even recollect a time when the CEO would say, Andre, I'm giving up on this. I want to hand this over to someone else. So from this perspective, I'm sure it happens. But especially in those early stages we invest in, pre-seed and seed, if it turns out that for whatever reason, it's not going to work out for this team, which might be the fault of the team, but more often than not, it is not, then we just take a write-off on it. We are in the business of you know, writing off between 30 to 50% of our investments. Uh, we believe that the number of companies you write off is actually a benchmark of how much risk you take as a VC. And we want to be set up in a way where we want to take very big risks hopefully with a very big reward somewhere down the road. But that big risk also entails some write-offs. Definitely. If you look into Sequoia's funds, um, the fund that returned the most, which is the fund that actually had WhatsApp in it, is the fund that also had the biggest write-off. So that was the actually maybe the batch where they took the most risk, which ended up being uh, the most lucrative for them. So that definitely makes sense. You talked about the fact that the founders are far away from the market, which becomes problematic for various of reasons. And so the, it's tough for a founder to have founder market fit as they relocate to the US, yet alone have product market fit. And apart from IT, you also focus on healthcare, but the healthcare system in the US and the whole value chain is very much different than the one in Europe. Um, don't you see that those have very two different dynamics and it would be tough for a health tech entrepreneur to go from Europe and be successful in the US because of these changing dynamics? Uh, 100% agree. And I can give you a good example of where it actually worked out for us in, in healthcare. The company is called Search Logs. Mm-hmm. You touched on the topic of founder market fit. And many times you have to find that founder market fit sort of externally or out of your comfort zone, right? Like I think the disadvantage or the weakness a lot of founders make is that they take as their co-founders people who are their friends who have very similar backgrounds as opposed for them to have very different backgrounds. And Surge Logs was actually a company where that unique team composition came together beautifully because Surge Logs does backend automation of administrative processes in surgical centers and hospitals. And the way they realized that there is a market opening in the U.S. is there was actually an owner of a surgery center who came to the CEO of SurgeLog who lived in San Diego at the time and said, look, I have a bunch of these logs which I have to write down on a pen and paper and then maintain them in a cellar for my audits and certificate inspections and for regulation purposes. Is there no way we can make a SaaS product that is going to digitize all of it and just keep the records online? And he said, of course there is. And so he put a tech team together based out of Slovakia that actually developed suite of digital logs for surgical centers and hospitals based on the need of this owner of the surgical center in San Diego, who became the co-founder of SurgeLogs. And so when we first looked at the company, they had that unique combination of a product and technical CEO from Slovakia based in San Diego, an owner of a surgical center who knew the market inside and out, and then a salesperson who was selling to surgical centers and hospitals for the past 10 years of his career. And those were the core three ingredients which we were looking for and are looking for in early stage companies. So you have someone with an idea and intimate market knowledge. You have someone who is able to execute technically on the product vision, and then you have somebody who can take that product and actually sell it to customers on a scale. 
Uh, and those three people matched all those, those criteria very well. So we invested in the summer of last year. And by December of last year, we were able to raise a subsequent Series A from a Silicon Valley investor called 8VC that focuses primarily on software mm-hmm. and uh, in healthcare. I agree 100%. Um, I think you need diversity in every aspect, even if diversity brings in conflicts, even those conflicts are productive uh, for the company. We also have one company called Carbon Health, uh, which runs and operates health clinics, mostly in California. They're trying to become countrywide right now. And the founder is Turkish and he has a technical background. So he was a really great CTO. He was a really good CEO, um, but he doesn't have a medical background. So from get-go, um, he onboarded a chief medical officer, but that alone even wasn't enough. So we merged the company with a legacy clinic provider um, in the U.S. just to be able to get all their know-how, suck in all their know-how about um, how to run a clinic in the U.S. And now the company raised more than $40 million last year. So you need that diversity definitely in the team. Um, so now I'm going to move along to three quick-fire questions. Um, this is something that I'm going to try for the in the third season. I'll just give you three really short questions and want to get answers from you. So my first question is, let's say you are not allowed to work for a year and you can't live anywhere you want, which city would that be? Prague. Definitely? Yeah, because like... I was looking for a... <laughs> uh, you are looking for an original answer, but I think that a lot of the research shows that there's this common misnomer that you have your laptop somewhere on the sandy beach, sipping on a mojito, <laughs> showing the life of a remote worker. But this just like PR nonsense. Like it doesn't work in real life. A... Like if you have ever tried working on a beach with a laptop, you know what a pain that is. It sucks. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And B, like all the research shows that it's very important for human well-being to form and have strong relationships with people around you. So to have friends, to have people to go out with. And that is much more important in the long term for human well-being than whether you sit on a beach or you are on some mountain top or if you're in the middle of a forest or in the middle of a city. Uh, so from this perspective, if you ask me where would I spend a month, maybe I would tell you some cool exotic place. But if I had somewhere <laughs> a year, the last place where I would want to be is be locked up on some beach or on some mountain top not knowing anybody, <laughs> not being able to speak the local language and try to make new friends. So, you know, call me introverted, call me old school, but I would like to stay in Prague. <laughs> yeah, so I guess the answer is wherever your hometown is then. <laughs> um, second question is, if you had to rename Credo, which I basically love the name, by the way, uh, what would that be? So what name would you rebrand it to? Yeah, it's not a great one, but it would be Audacious Ventures. Audacious Ventures, because I think that, you know, we as Central and Eastern Europeans are in a big disadvantage compared to the Americans when it comes to definition of success. When you live in San Francisco, every second girl or guy around you has either built or worked for a billion dollar company. When you look around in Prague or in Istanbul or wherever, there is no other person in your vicinity who has started or worked for a billion dollar, at least technology startup. And therefore, the definition of what successful is, what big is, is much smaller because we compare ourselves to the peers we see around us. And that's where the thinking big is just much harder for us in Central and Eastern Europe because we don't see that many people thinking and building products at a scale at which the Americans do. And that, I think, is sort of our biggest cultural disadvantage. And if I was to call my fund something else than Credo, it would be audacious 
to send a signal to entrepreneurs out there that no vision is too ambitious, too crazy, or too out of this world for us. We want to speak to the craziest people with the boldest visions we can find, as cliche as that may be. <laughs> no, it's a perfect answer. I'll actually search for the domain and get it uh, if it's untaken. <laughs> so last question is, Fair enough. <laughs> if you had to donate your whole net worth into one private company, which company would that be? And by private, do you mean non-profit or for-profit? I mean, I would prefer a for-profit answer. That's more fun. I guess OpenAI is now for-profit. <laughs> uh, even though it's mission non-profit side, I think they're trying to find a pathway to revenue. I would give it to them. I think that for 21st century, the question of what kind of artificial intelligence we are going to develop and what impact it is going to have on our lives is the defining questions of this century. And therefore, if I can contribute something to a company that can tip the odds of us building a future for ourselves, which is more optimistic, then that's where my money would go. Well, thanks for joining the podcast, Andre. Anis, thank you so much for having me. It was surprising for me to hear that Credo is not interested in regional or pan-European startups at all. Credo's portfolio is mostly enterprise software companies, and for those, US is the place to be as a large unified market, full of early adapters and very high enterprise technology budgets, in fact, larger than all other countries combined. Entrepreneurs in places like Central Eastern Europe or Turkey start with a talent advantage, which comes at the cost of founder market fit disadvantage. That's why Credo is bullish on diaspora entrepreneurs who start where their market is, yet employ talent back at home. Best way to overcome the founder market fit disadvantage, according to Andre, relocate and get closer to your core market. This is the end of today's episode. Ciao. To stay in the loop, go to our website, getcc.com, or follow us at getcc on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, and YouTube.